0: G'day and welcome to My Favourite Album. I'm journalist and filmmaker Jeremy Dillon and each episode I'll be talking to a different guest about an album they love and how it's influenced and inspired them. I get more entertainment out of my guest today's social media handles than I do out of most musicians' whole albums. She is the millennial falcon at Fake nudes, And on top of all that, a deft crafter of intimate songs that wield subtle, quiet dynamics like a switchblade to the heart on generous display on her 2017 debut album, Stranger in the Alps. There's something so cathartic about extreme emotion, she says. Phoebe Bridges, welcome to my favourite album.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for being here. Phoebe, what is your favorite album?
1: My favorite album is I'm Wide Awake, It's Morning by Bright Eyes. It'll
2: go like this, all right. While my mother waters plants, my father loads his gone. He says death will give us back to God. Just like the setting sun is returned to the lonesome ocean.
1: I think I was 15 when I heard it and it had been around for a minute but people were kind of trying to shove it down my throat in this weird way and like all my peers loved Bright Eyes and I had never listened to it before and then I was supposed to play an open mic with my friend Lindsay and she made me learn a song from it for the open mic to play guitar with her and I remember thinking at the time and I still think now like top to
0: bottom it's just an
1: amazing album.
0: Which song was that that she made you learn?
1: You know, I think I, I didn't want to say because it makes me seem lame, but it probably was first day of my life, which is of course the giant mega hit from that record, yeah. um, but we were fifteen year old girls for Christ's sake, so
0: so were you deliberately avoiding listening to it because people were trying to shove I think, it down your or throat? not
1: deliberately necessarily actually the same thing kind of happened the same thing happens if people assume that I'm going to love something, like when my friends tried to show me Julian Baker. They were like, oh, you probably sound like this female singer-songwriter that I heard, which kind of bugged me, you know what I mean? And yeah, I was yeah. like, no, you can't know exactly what I'm going to like. And then, of course, I fucking loved it. And the same happened with Bright Eyes, where everybody was like, oh, all the other teenage girls love this music. You're probably <laughs> going to love it. And I was like, I'm not not like everybody else. And then, of course, it was like a very seminal album for me.
0: After that, when you started listening to it, what was the initial reaction to it what were your first experiences playing that as a kid
1: i think what's so special to me about it is that every song was my favorite song from top to bottom like the order of the tracks is so perfectly laid out and and i never i don't know with all my other favorite records i've had some favorites at different times or at different times in my life i connect with one song over the other and this Record. I definitely have moments with specific songs on it. But this record, I think, is a perfect record in its sequence and everything. It's very organized.
0: So is this an album where if you're on shuffle on something and one track comes on, you have to stop and listen to the whole record through?
1: You know, I would say I actually, yeah, like I will skip it. If it's on shuffle in my iTunes library, one, because it's like too emotional for me. But also, yeah, because it's so perfectly sequenced. Sometimes I do like go back and try to hear songs, and and I'll look for them. But yeah, it's a lot to spring on someone all at once, for sure. So I definitely I lo- I look to listen to it top to bottom, which is why I love having it on vinyl because it like makes you do that.
0: I heard you say once in another interview, I think it was about an Elliott Smith song, like you were driving. With a friend somewhere, and you were in, like you're both in a really good mood, and then this Elliott Smith song came on, <laughs> and you just burst into tears. Exactly,
1: yeah, and actually, coincidentally, that is the same friend who went to the school, like, she introduced me to the friend who introduced me to Bright Eyes, and we all kind of discovered Bright Eyes at once. And Kathleen, the woman now, who I burst into tears with, she and I share a lot of the same music taste. We actually used to sing Bright Eyes songs together all the time when I used to busk at uh, farmer's markets.
0: Right. <laughs> What's the audience like for busking at the farmer's market?
1: Oh, brutal. They don't care about you. So, I mean, i met a, not, a lot of really nice people, but I think mostly the, the great part about busking was learning how to not care if nobody cares
0: about what you're doing. It's a good skill to pick up early <laughs> exactly, on. Exactly,
1: exactly. Yeah.
0: So I'm guessing if you were playing then, you were probably also starting to write songs around that time, or is this earlier?
1: Yeah, I, I tried out lots of songs at the farmer's market, again, because nobody was paying attention. Yeah. And then Bright Eyes and that record kind of completely changed the way I thought about um, my own songwriting, because it led so perfectly out of my previous music taste which was basically just everything that my parents listened to like Jackson Brown, Tom Waits, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Neil Young, exactly like all those classic singer-songwriters suddenly with Bright Eyes there was someone who was doing that but like in my generation and speaking to me a lot more like specifically about there's a lot of like talk about the war there's a lot of talk about violence and streets and and these like really really heavy emotions which I'd never never heard someone even close to my age portray. He was a kid when that record came out. He was my age now, yeah, which is absurd. So so yeah, I just I connected so deeply and then it really informed
0: my songwriting as an early teen. So how did it change after that? What was the element or what was the quality about your songwriting after that that you were heading towards that wasn't there before?
1: I think it was just the freedom or, or knowing that I could talk about my own life and it would be, basically, I didn't have to do anything in the image of previous singer-songwriters or, you know, what the style had been before. I mean, he released, uh, basically, an electronic record the same day as I'm Wide Awake It's Morning. Like, it I kind of just opened all these doors for me. Like, I can do anything. I can talk about my problems. I can talk about my experience. and And people find it interesting. I don't have to be of a different generation or keep all these you know weird phrases like cell phone you know out of my music it just felt a lot more real and timely as I'm sure Joni Mitchell did when you know she was just emerging
0: yeah is it kind of like the book of great music is not finished being written it's still ongoing right something then that i was going to ask you about later but connor oberst was your age now yeah when this record i mean he was he was 24 and what you're 23 23 yeah yeah so how does it feel to think about that you're in the moment at least biologically now (laughs) that he was when he made this record it's
1: really intimidating it's crazy I, i still can't believe it i think his songwriting has continued to grow like with his age, and that's one of my favorite things about Connor, is that so many people who were put into this little box of emo genre, they stayed there, and now they're doing throwback tours, or nostalgia tours, and Connor's music has continued to grow, because it wasn't ever just that genre, it was all singer-songwriting music, which is so like deeply genuine, coming from him. So, I think I feel intimidated because he was my age when he released yeah like I think a very seminal record but also hopeful that I have learned enough from him to continue to grow and not try to like force myself to be any one thing if that makes sense
0: sure so do you consider this an emo album or do you consider like your stuff emo
1: I think I mean I kind of hate genre titles anyway like everybody does I hate singer-songwriter I hate emo but for what they are I do think yes Emo just means emotional. I think to the grand population, it means someone wearing a choker, singing in a very like breathy voice, which I think maybe Conor started. <laughs> but I think it's an emo singer-songwriter album, if for lack of a better term.
0: So this is, you mentioned before, it's quite a political record. And he, from the way he's talked in interviews, had a kind of political awakening around this period, around Bush getting elected and then yeah. the war which was such a calcifying or stratifying experience for a lot of artists around that time. You're writing at the moment for presumably a second album. (laughs) How much is the current clusterfuck informing any of the stuff that you're writing?
1: To be honest with you, almost none. I think there's a weird responsibility for songwriters to write about it, so... I'll probably think twice about it before recording anything. Like, I'll, I'll sit back and say, what responsibility do I have to talk about this or shed light? Because it does deeply affect me and disturb me every single day. But I think, like, currently in my writing, which my album is only half done, my second record is only half written. So there's definitely lots of room, but I think it's, I've been exhibiting, like, crazy avoidance behavior with it, where I just want to think about my stupid problems. I don't want to think about, like, genocide. You know what I mean? Uh, Which is always, which is another like stylistic difference between me and Connor. He's always been so political and so like deeply affected and, and has like a completely different way of saying things that people said every day on the news, which I think is so special and I hope to emulate someday. But yeah, basically, I feel a responsibility to write about it, but I have not done it yet.
0: It's interesting. Maybe your your record would be more like Nebraska, where you're not directly right. writing about any of that stuff, but it's sort of around the edges of personal experiences. Right,
1: totally. I love Nebraska. That's another, like, I actually thought about that for this interview. Nebraska is a great, a great album.
0: Well, you've already done a podcast about Nebraska. Exactly. Recently, See,
1: so. that's what I was thinking. I'm like, I'll talk about another favorite.
0: Yeah. And, I- and
1: Connor and Bruce Springsteen went on a tour, basically promoting for... Bush not to get reelected, and which of course he did, with Michael Stipe. So, world's gliding in that way, too. Yeah,
0: like the Rock the Vote tour? Yep. Yeah, the, in, during the 04 campaign. Good shows. I mean... Dude, I bet. There's clips on YouTube of, like, seven of them playing Rockin' in the Free World together. So crazy. I mean, didn't work, but, you know... No,
1: so depressing.
0: Yeah. Oh, well. So... You know Connor Oberst. You did a duet with him on your record. You've toured with him. How does... Well, first, expand on what I just said there a bit from your point of view, but also how does that change the experience of your relationship with his music now?
1: Yeah, I think I've been regularly disappointed by my heroes and I have a good way of separating music that I've always connected with from people's personalities. And with Connor, I have not had to do that. His personality is only expanded upon the great feelings I had about his music already but I mixed my record in Omaha in his studio with Mike Mogus who's in Bright Eyes and met Connor that way basically and yeah I have like 25 new like for life friends just from being friends with Connor he's just one of those people who has been hanging out with the same people since he was like a little kid he doesn't burn bridges and I think you see a lot of that when you've been a musician for so long
0: but yeah a true truly good soul and you've at least a couple of times because I've seen clips on YouTube but you've been playing a song from this record yeah with him so how did, was that his idea or your idea it was or? his
1: idea it was when I was mixing and we didn't really know each other and I was so nervous and he texted me like I think it was his first text to me it was like uh, do you want to sing Lua with me I was like absolutely I do and then went down to his house to rehearse it and he was like I printed the lyrics so I was like I a thousand percent <laughs> don't need those
3: know that
1: And then we've done it probably a hundred times at this point because we toured together, and it's always really, really special. And and also, I've for this interview, I like re-listened to the record, and I was like, oh my god, I haven't even let myself listen to this in so long because I could write it out, you know, from top to bottom. And sometimes you just burn a hole through records. But I think doing this interview is like giving me a second. I think about the songs completely differently now. They shed like a completely different cool light on my life right now than they did when I was a teenager. And also I saw him perform songs from this record every single night of tour. But yeah, every once in a while it's very sobering to take a step back and say like 15 year old me would be so unbelievably excited if she knew that this is happening. So that's really cool.
0: And is there any part of your experience of listening to this record now where or even seeing him play some of these songs live where there's maybe a, a lyric you heard one way or was like opaque to you where you now go like knowing him is like I know what that means
1: Yeah totally I also miss hear lyrics in a in a really serious way sometimes <laughs> and then he'll correct me like I actually play this deep cut Bright Eyes song called Bad Blood Cuz
3: baby now we got bad blood You know we- Mad
1: love Not Taylor Swift or Ryan Adams' cover of it. But it's uh, yeah, it's this beautiful song that he did with Jimmy Lavelle from Album Leaf. And it was on some 7-inch or something, I think. But they re-released it on the Noise Floor demos. And it's just a beautiful song. And I totally misheard a lyric. And he corrected me. But I will also say that it was such a deep cut that the first time I played it, halfway through, he thought to himself oh, this why is this familiar to me? And I had no idea until halfway through the song, which is great and very satisfying. But also he changes lyrics from this album regularly. I think just maybe he really doesn't know that it's wrong or he's just trying to excite himself and, and revamp something. But they're always just... I'm trying to think of a good example, but they're always just... I can't believe that he has two ways to say something that are equally incredible but yeah he is kind of like a true poet which i can't say a lot about my other favorite songwriters i don't think anybody's as consistent i think he's like a leonard cohen where it's like the poetry is really kind of the root of why it's so incredible whereas someone like ryan adams it's like he's basically writing pop songs in this different package and they're great but if you were to like print it out and put it on your wall it might look goofy compared to a Conor Ober song where it's like that's like a fucking poem so cool
0: it would be interesting to do a book of lyrics for Connor's stuff. Like I have a Leonard Cohen book of lyrics yeah. that I carry around with me and like I yeah. you can just read them and totally. it still works.
1: Yeah, I think someone could make bank on that. Someone should do that.
0: There you go. It's probably, is Settle Creek got a publishing division?
1: Yeah, hopefully. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's funny, like the thing about changing the lyrics for olds, I wonder sometimes when people do that whether part of it is if you're someone, and I, I know you do this to an extent where you, you don't just record the first draft you like work on songs and improve on them and refine them maybe sometimes if you haven't played them for a while you might be remembering an earlier draft of some of those lyrics. That's
1: true too for sure but I also think that you are also tempted to expand on them even after you've recorded them which is very frustrating because hopefully you record the best, Uh, Connor said that too he said you know they had been A lot of the songs from this album were relatively new and they recorded them and now they have them down to a T the way that they perform them live and he's like, if I could only go back. I'm like, yeah, because this album wasn't received well enough. You definitely (laughs) should go back and re-record it. But I think that can be a frustration for sure. Are
0: there any songs on your record where you're at the point now where you go like, if only I could just re...
1: Yes, so many. I think every song has like a little piece that I think about because for that reason like when you tour on something you refine it you know what feels good and for many songs on my record they were completed the day of recording them you know whether it was production or lyrics but a lot of the time the production was like building on something and then we completely delete everything and then we'd keep one weird thing and build on that and instead of this organic like everybody playing the music all together so it's very tempting to say I would I would love to go back and re-record
0: yeah
2: so I go back and forth forever All my thoughts, they coming in cares Oh, I will, I won't, I doubt of them I'm not surprised But I never feel quite
0: prepared Whoa. Emily Harris sings on this record. Yeah. Are there any particular... I mean, you obviously did a duet with Connor on your record. Are there other voices who you want to hear with yours or harmonizing with you.
1: It's funny that you say that because I, when thinking about who to sing, basically that song was kind of a zombie, Would You Rather was a zombie song because we, I wrote the lyrics for the verse separately, I wrote the melody separately and the chorus separately from each other and then I ended up trying to sing it and realizing that it was twice as fast if I wanted to sing the Verse the way I pictured. Right. Like, I couldn't sing the chorus by myself without just singing a duet with myself, which I, of course, couldn't do live. So. We were like, oh, we haven't had a real true duet on this album yet. Let's do it. And they were like, well, who do you want to sing it? And we threw out, or a bunch of people threw out all these options. And I, <laughs> completely without thinking of Connor, was like, ah, you know, I'm wide awake this morning, Emmylou Harris' voice. Like, he didn't have to say featuring Emmylou Harris. He didn't have to do any of that bullshit. You're just immediately like, oh, my God, it's Emmylou Harris. Yeah. And I was like, I want that distinct of a voice. And everyone was like, Phoebe. Phoebe. <laughs> <laughs> like, who has a distinctive voice and so immediately it was like oh my god you're the one
3: who tried to burn it down come to
1: Connor, it's unmistakably Connor when you hear his voice anywhere. So that was the whole plan. But again, I love voices like that. Like, I love uh, Jackson Brown, Tom Waits, Mark Hosleck, Emmylou Harris. Like, those are all distinct voices that I would love to do duets with because it's like, I just love that. And also, I, I love Emmylou on Ryan Adams' album, too. It's like she's almost passing down this torch of like, you now get to go on and be in the scene that I was in, and you have my blessing.
0: She's very good at anointing people.
1: Exactly. Or just like people who have been in her band. Yeah. She just
0: push, like John Mayer and the blues breakers were in the 60s. And the moon's laying
1: low in the
2: sky Forcing everything metal to shine And the sidewalk holds diamonds like a jewellery store case They argue, walk this way, no, walk this way and Laura's asleep in my bed. As I'm leaving, she wakes up and says, I dreamed you were carried away on the crest of a wave. Baby, don't go away. Come
0: here. So when you go back and listen to this record now, so many years on from... Actually, I guess it's not... It's like eight years on from when you first discovered it now. Uh-huh. How is the experience... You know, when you listen to it the other day or when you listen to it now, what's the experience of listening to this record now?
1: It's just like, wow, 15-year-old me had great taste. (laughs) Like, what a cool, a lot of people look back on their music taste when they were a kid and they are embarrassed. And I'm just like, wow, this is when I figured it out. I feel like that's when I figured out what my true taste was. It felt like very... Very mine. Like I said, a lot of my music was coming from my parents or someone told me that I needed to like it. And this was something that I felt like just an immediate personal connection to, which I still definitely feel. You know, it's like Christmas lights or something. You see them and it takes you back to when you were a kid. And this record for sure takes me back to like a very specific time and place. But like I said, On the other hand, it also sheds all this weird new light on my life right now, and I'm hearing lines, lines are popping out to me that didn't necessarily before, and I'm just, like, amazed at the whole... And also, the production is just incredible, like what Nate Walcott and Mike Mogus bring to the table for Bright Eyes, because I think Connor by himself, he loves, like, cowboy chords, and his songs are so beautiful, but it, they're definitely leaning more in the, like, John Prine direction of, yeah, yeah. of a couple chords, like, very sparsely chosen chords. And I think what Mike and Nate bring to the table is, like, what if this bridge lasted for a weird amount of time? <laughs> or we all exploded into this weird, like, crashing of instruments or... With a trumpet solo in the background. trumpet solo in the background, exactly. You know, Nate trashed a trumpet on stage on Nate late night one time, and it's, like, legendary. But, yeah, I just think those three dudes together just create like something so incredible
0: is there something you were listening to when you're when you were 15 that people would be surprised about because most of the artists you've name checked through this interview i think people would be like that totally makes sense i would have put decent money that phoebe bridges is a fan of those people but is there anyone in your record collection that would surprise people
1: maybe like jack's mannequin (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. uh, But I I liked like emo, like pop punk stuff like that. But also, the great thing about Bright Eyes is that they were weirdly like lumped in with a lot of super, super emo acts, but they were something entirely different. You can't like peel back the layers and find some problem with it to me personally. Yeah. Um, Whereas Jack's Mannequin is very like overproduced and I still think they're rad, but they definitely were a different world. What would surprise people? Uh, Nas. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I saw Nas on, like, the 20th anniversary of that album, and I just, like, it was a trip. I was at, like, Coachella or something. But what else? I had a friend, oh, my friend Kathleen, who was part of the reason I discovered Bright Eyes. She uh, put on, like, songs from the Hairspray soundtrack on a playlist for me, and I guiltily, like, listened to them over and over. So, yeah, definitely a couple surprises in there.
0: Cool. I look forward to the Naz duet on the next yeah, album. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Naz and Tom Waits. Yeah. I
3: went with you up to the place you grew up in. We spent a week in the cold. Just long enough to walden it with you any longer at what a got old. Singing ace of spades when Lemmy died, but nothing's changed LA.
0: I read an interview with you a while ago when you said, I'm working on not needing validation from other people. And I was just wondering how that's going.
1: I think it's going pretty good. I think to tie it back in, I definitely, if Connor were to tell me that he didn't like something that I wrote, I would be mortified. But I think the main thing I meant by that is that I feel like half the time when I show songs or I play a show, for example, I get off stage and I think it went one way. So, like, say, or I'll use songs. Say I write a song and I'm showing it to someone and I'm like, oh, and I apologize for it for 15 minutes before I play it. I'm like, oh, I don't even know if it's done, but secretly I'm really proud of it. And then they're like, oh, yeah, I don't think it's done yet either. Then I'm like, what? (laughs) They agreed with my fake version of what was happening. I was just trying to seem modest or whatever it is. I just don't. Yeah, I want to be honest and just be able to have a constructive conversation with people that I like love and trust instead of apologizing for myself every second and I think it's going pretty good it's definitely my first album I definitely apologize for myself a lot more and I think this time around I'll be honest with myself about what I like
0: and what I don't like good that feels like uncommonly healthy for this, <laughs> for this business Phoebe thanks for talking to me today about your favorite album
1: yeah thanks so much for having me and you.
0: Well, that's it for another episode of my favorite album thanks for listening i've been jeremy Dillon. you can follow me at mr jeremy dylan like our facebook page at facebook.com slash my favorite album subscribe on itunes and if you dig the show please leave a review thanks again for listening and see you next time
3: lights on the
0: street
3: put all the stars God.